Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. Hi everyone, um, people familiar with Scientific Sense podcast um, uh, know that uh, we typically have one guest uh, and today's session is a little different. We have three other guests and we're going to have a broad conversation around microbes, the microbiome, how microbes interact with other biological systems, not just humans. Uh, and so we have three three guests, um, and I let uh, let them introduce themselves. Fred, uh, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, well, thanks for having me on, Gail. Uh, my name is Frederick Inglis. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Missouri uh, in St. Louis, and I study microbiology. I'm particularly interested in how microbes evolve and interact with each other, and how these interactions cause disease. Brittany. Hi, thanks for having us, Gil. Um, I'm Britt Peterson. I'm an assistant professor at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville, and I study uh, insect microbe interactions. We colloquially refer to my lab as the bug guts lab, and we're interested in how complex microbial communities influence each other and their hosts um, to manifest as um, traits that are selectable and uh, how they evolve as a, co a collective, basically. Suzanne? Hi, thanks, Gil. I'm Suzanne DeSalvo. I'm also at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville, so SIUE. I'm an assistant professor, um, and I study the interactions between bacteria and eukaryotes, uh, specifically bacteria um, interactions in a sort of model microbial eukaryotic system um, to look at the mechanisms and outcomes of those interactions, specifically intracellular bacterial infections in that system. Excellent, excellent. So um, before we start, I want to set the context a little bit and I want to go all the way back. Um, so the universe started about 14 billion years ago, the solar system uh, and, and the Earth uh, around four and a half billion years ago. Uh, my understanding is that the first microbe showed up on Earth about four billion years ago. Um, and so they have been around for a long time. Um, 
one could argue uh, that bacteria, probably the, the most successful, um, most successful life um, that we know of, uh, definitely on Earth, um, and we haven't found anything else outside the Earth. So they still seem to be one of the best uh, biological system that we know. Uh, so, um, so four billion years is a long time. Um, so I would imagine they have evolved, uh, and they evolved with other uh, systems. Uh, maybe at least part of that four billion years. So, so what do we know about? you know, sort of the evolution uh, of microbes. Yeah, so, I mean, that's a, you raise an interesting point there, Gil. And I think some of the things to keep in mind, I think it's quite hard for us as humans, we're very visually, like, dominated. We tend to be interested in things we see. But really, we live in a microbial world. Um, the vast majority of life on our planet is, you know, our bacteria or prokaryotes or even eukaryotic microbes, just tiny little things that we'll never be able to see with a naked eye. And they, in fact, dominate all of the important you know, geochemical processes from nitrogen fixation, carbon cycle. Um, these are mostly microbial processes. It's true that some big things like plants get involved occasionally, but really it's microbes that run the show. And they've been running the show for about four billion years. And then at some point, um, eukaryotes evolved and multicellular eukaryotes evolved, that, you know, things like humans. And even in terms of like human life or other kind of insect life, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the microbes inside of us and on us. And so I think this is a kind of a growing, we have this growing appreciation that many of the processes, even in humans, um, require microbial life. I think one of the kind of classic things people will, you'll hear people say, is that there are more bacterial cells in the human body than human cells. And that's in part yeah. because they're so tiny. That's also incorrect. There's probably about an equal amount of bacterial cells as are, um, you know, human cells. But it's, that's a huge number. There's probably like, you know, a few pounds of your weight are, is bacteria in your gut. So, and if you don't have bacteria, like if you're not a biotic or like you get rid of all the bacteria, you don't live very long. And so they're essentially very important for all kinds of processes. And we're just, yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's an exciting and growing field trying to understand what these bacteria are, what they're doing, and then how we can even manipulate them to try to, you know, cure diseases or um, prevent kind of infections. Yeah, yeah, and I yeah. think um, one thing is if you think about our own evolution as just eukaryotes, uh, it's required that, or the idea is that um, endosymbiosis basically initiated the um, occurrence of the common eukaryote now. So a um, endosymbiosis event wherein a ancestor of the eukaryote basically engulfed a bacterial cell and then that bacterial cell evolved into our mitochondria and possibly other organelles. So this event probably occurred a few times uh, depending on the particular eukaryote you're talking about. Um, and that's so, and that allowed for this evolution of eukaryotes to begin with, and then of course the evolution of multicellularity. Yeah, and I really think that kind of going back to what Fred was talking about, a lot of the physiological and even ecological processes that we kind of attribute to even large eukaryotes like plants, they have a microbial component. And when if we lived in a germ-free world, those things would cease to exist. And so I think the impact of microbial life can't be overstated. It, it really, they, they seem to be the puppet masters in almost all systems um, when it comes down to it. We don't understand all the 
mechanisms and the underpinnings, but we do know that when you take them away, a lot changes. Yeah, um, we will talk more about this. Uh, and I think this idea is getting a little bit more debated, but you know, some people say that uh, the human body is really an enclosure uh, for the bacteria <laughs> to uh, make a living. Uh, but but I think there is there's more debate around that. So, um, Britt, you know, one of one of uh, your area of interest uh, is looking at uh, not just human guts, but uh, but other uh, pests and other things, right? So how bacteria might affect uh, affect them, and just like humans require a certain type of bacteria in the gut to to process food and so on, we see that it's got a sort of a common um, common uh, problem for other organisms too, right? Yeah, I think this um, this pattern of an animal being colonized by some number of microbes is pretty typical. Who those microbes are and what they're doing is, is variable. And how um, obligate that interaction is, is also variable. But it seems to hold true that there are microbes in these systems and um, we can understand various things about the host based on studying those microbes. So the systems that I study like termites, we know, we've known for a hundred years that termite digestion of wood is dependent um, at least largely on a healthy gut microbiota. Um, but we're learning more and more that, oh, their immune system is also really primed by the, the community in their guts. And, we're learning more about how gut microbiota influence things like circulating hormones, and that can have implications for behavior. And so it seems like their their little flagella are are really kind of getting into just about everything we identify as being host related. And so while the cast of characters is different and the manifestation of that cast is different in each host, there seems to be some microbial um, influence. Yeah. And Suzanne, um, you, you look at um, sort of the interaction between bacteria and other microsystems like amoeba. So, so to set the sort of the size of these things. So uh, am I right in, um, in, in thinking about bacterium uh, at about one micrometer uh, and maybe an amoeba, maybe 10 times the size of that? Yeah, that's about right. Okay. Okay. And so, 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 what do we know? I know that you do you run a lot of experiments around this. So, what do we know about the interactions at that scale between bacteria and amoeba in this case? Um. So, in this case, uh, the back the amoeba that I look at is a soil dwelling amoeba, and so it actually is uh, constantly consuming bacteria as a food source. Uh, and it phagocytoses those bacteria and digests them. And what's uh, interesting, I think, about that, too, if you want to relate that to, say, a human system, is that this is similar to the way that some of our innate immune cells function to actually clear out bacteria and other sort of microbial infections from our body. So they actually phagocytose those pathogens and digest them. And that's actually what these amoebas are doing in the soil naturally um, to acquire food source. Um, and then of course in the soil, there's just so many of these uh, microbes that are uh, interacting there. Um, and so you have these dynamic interactions be 
from, say, the predatorization pressure that the amoebas are um, inducing on the bacteria. It's also bacteria potentially evolving strategies to evade that or even to establish um, as sort of intracellular parasites within the amoebas. And all of those mechanisms may also be um, similar to, say, the interactions that bacteria may have for higher organisms like mammals um, and could even um, lead to the evolution of, um, say, bacterial pathogens uh, for humans. And so amoeba is using uh, at least some variety of bacteria as food. Yeah. So they're basically processing the bacteria and converting that into food. So they're not, they're not really staying within the system. Right. Yeah. So for the most part, they're um, pretty capable of consuming, it seems like a wide variety of bacteria as a food source. Um, and some bacteria are able to evade that. And some may be able to, you know, be intracellular parasites. But from, I think, the, the larger scale, it seems like these amoebas are pretty efficient at uh, predatorizing a huge variety of bacteria, not just bacteria. It's been shown that they can even eat other larger um, microbes, such as uh, fungal cells, which they're about equivalent in size to. I think also another interesting point about these yeah. amoebas, not that they only eat bacteria, but they might form sort of symbiotic relationships with some bacteria. And this is controversial. So Suzanne may contradict me on this, and that's that's fine as well. But there is some evidence that suggests that some types of bacteria can confirm some type of benefit to these amoeba. They can either detoxify the environment, prevent perhaps infections by more pathogenic bacteria. How stable these relationships are, or how transitory, we don't know. It might just be that it happens occasionally. It may not be dominating these interactions. But I mean, it is tantalizing to think that even in a, you know, amoeba can hold tens, maybe hundred, well, that's probably a lot, tens of these bacteria and these bacteria might actually be forming some kind of, um, yeah, symbiotic relationship or beneficial relationship between both the amoeba and bacteria. It's, it's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think we really fully know the ecological relevance of that, or as uh, Fred said, the, um, even the the amount that this is occurring in the environment or how stably it's occurring in the environment. Um, but the other component of it is it could be very context dependent, whether these types of interactions could be beneficial to the amoeba or harmful to the amoeba. So I think all of that we really don't know. And that probably expands to pretty much every, um, <laughs> many of the interactions that are occurring in nature. I, I know it's certainly true in insects. Uh, context dependence is is everything for a lot of these interactions. Yeah. Yeah. So, so talk about that a little bit, Britt. So, detoxification. Uh, I want to, uh, you know, sort of explore detoxification aspects, but also I don't know if this is practical. But are there any therapeutic effects uh, of this uh, bacteria-eating amoeba on human systems? So I can speak to the detox um, question. Yeah. So we know at least in insects that these interactions with bacteria can be relatively transient, but confer huge benefits to their host. So there's examples in some insects where in a single generation, a population of bugs can pick up soil bacteria just, you know, in their normal being bugs. And those bacteria, because they've been exposed to particular pesticides for, you know, there's some selective pressure there, 
they're able to break down those pesticides and use them as things like carbon and nitrogen sources. And in insect hosts, they continue to do this kind of basic met metabolism and it ends up benefiting the host. And so having some kind of um, gut lining or particular symbiont organ that can be colonized by these bacteria can confer massive advantages and can sweep through a population really quickly. Um, and it, it's as simple as these bacteria do it normally. It's, it's like bioremediation, but in an insect. These bacteria do it normally, and these insects are basically just biotech, right? They're exploiting these bacteria for what they do normally, and it confers a benefit. So the, the pesticide resistance that we are seeing, um, part of that is related to this effect that uh, the bacteria uh, are really helping this pest to... Uh, to, to get around the pesticide? It can be. It's definitely not the only way. There's selective pressure on the host to detoxify or mitigate it as well. Um, especially in some of our American agriculture systems, it's, there's a huge selective pressure on the host as well. But the bacteria are in the soil and on plants or in the host themselves. So they're facing the same um, pressure. And it's a, an abundant nutrient. If you can think about a pesticide as a potential nutrient, it has carbon, sometimes nitrogen or phosphorus side groups, um, that's to a bacterium, that's food. You, you just have to have the right enzymes. Yeah, so, so this goes into a broader question of the symbiotic relationship. And so if you look at it as a system, the, the pest uh, and, and the bacteria uh, inside the pest, uh, that relationship uh, ultimately is going to counteract uh, the pesticide. So from an evolutionary perspective, uh, can we think of that system evolving or it's not that simple? Sometimes. Um, it, what's really interesting is a lot of these interactions seem to be pretty facultative um, and they will pop up and then just as quickly they'll go away. Um, a lot of gut microbiota are not intracellular in contrast to some of the things that Suzanne was talking about. They're actually cellular, they're colonizing the walls of the gut. Um, and so there's less um, reliance on the part of the bacteria for that host. If the pesticide is in the soil and the pesticide is in the host, they don't necessarily need to be in the host. It confers a huge advantage to the host, of course, but the bacteria um, may or may not have a selective advantage being inside the host. So there, we have examples where there seems to be a really tight coevolution. Um, of a, a host and a bacterium. And then we have other examples where it seems to be pretty transient and they pop kind of in and out and it's population dependent and context dependent. I think, so just um, f fascinatingly uh, riffing on what Britt was saying there, is there are some insect examples where maybe we're seeing this kind of, uh, where we can actually start thinking of them as a system that maybe evolution is acting on. This is kind of alignment of interest, um, a bit almost like our mitochondria inside human cells. Like, they're part of our cells, but they have some, you know, origin that's outside, some bacterial origin from billions of years ago. Um, and so one of these examples is in cicadas. They have these bacteria called trembolia, and there's another, there's a number of other ones as well, but they have tiny, tiny genomes. In mm -hmm. fact, they can't survive outside of this the cicada host, and they provide amino acids uh, and other functions as well. And they form these strange consortia. And so what we might be seeing now is a specialized recent, well, relatively recent in evolutionary terms, um, development of a new organelle, like by through bacterial capture. And to the point now where these things really require the cicada and require actually, in many cases, there's multiple different bacteria that 
require each other to complete these processes, which is just like wild, you know, kind of unbelievable that this is, we're kind of seeing kind of relatively recent evolution of these types of, um, yeah, like joining, becoming part of the same biological system. Yeah, so, so if you bring it to the human level, uh, Fred, you know, there's been a lot of talk around the human organism. I remember reading a paper uh, a few years ago, you know, it, it's a little far-fetched that there, there's a nerve, there are nerve endings in the gut, the bacteria could actually utilize that uh, to, to alter the behavior of the host. Uh, to get the right right level of food into the system and so on. So where, where do we where do we stand on that that general concept of human organism? And like you mentioned, a few pounds uh, of the weight is actually just bacteria inside a human. Yeah. Body. So I think it's interesting. So, so people have referred to this, and they've talked about like maybe the hollow biomes. This idea that maybe the unit of you know things that's evolving is not just a human; it's the human and all the microbes inside of it, and I guess that's like, an, and so where there's actually this kind of consortia of like human cells and microbial cells, and we're all these interests aligned, and we're, you know, maybe a composite organism. That's, that's cool. I, I like that idea. Um, it's hard to have, but the evidence surrounding that I think is 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 not great. Um, in part, even in humans, the microbial community that, that we have on our skin or inside our gut is also very transitory. These things change quite quickly. They can change over our lifetime. They can change through diet and through, um, you know, even antibiotic use will change the microbial communities we have inside us. And so that kind of, yeah. the fact that it's so transitory, I think is maybe a, a knock against this whole biome theory. And also it's not true that maybe microbes, you know, they just want to rep, they just like humans, they grow and divide. And then, you know, ones that are successful at growing and dividing are more represented in the next generation. And so their interests might lie, el my lie, may, nah, might lie elsewhere, right? And so I don't know, I, I think, and then the, the effects they exert on us. Yes, there is some, there have been studies that have, kind of shown that um, maybe they might be important in things like, you know, fascinatingly like autism, mental health disorders, all kinds of potential things there. I mean, if that's true, that's crazy, right? Like that's super cool, um, but it's really hard to show that, you know, unequivocally because uh, <laughs> there's so many factors involved right. in many of these uh, diseases and issues that it's, there might be a microbial component, but to what extent, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's a very complex system. I saw some data that, that indicated that the, the human microbiome changes within a week. Uh, so, you know, if you go from the U.S. to, let's say, Japan, uh, within a week, your microbiome is essentially different, replenished yeah. uh, with, with different things. So this transitory effect that you talked about uh, seems to indicate that uh, it's a host itself sort of uh, acquiring and assembling the, the right uh, right cohort of things, uh, uh, you know, that, that is beneficial. Um, I don't know, Suzanne, you know, if you go down to the amoeba level, um, what what does that interaction tell us? Uh, it's 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 lot, probably a lot easier, not, not easier, but maybe cleaner to study what happens there. Yeah, so I think it does serve as a very simple system where you could look at um, sort of mini microbiome formation. Um, one thing that maybe, you know, this amoeba system lacks is even though it does have a, in my case, it has both a single cellular and multicellular life cycle. 
Um, so you see some primitive sort of innate immunity going on there. Um, it does lack uh, more of a complex innate and of course an adaptive immunity, which I think is maybe one of the really, for me, one of the really interesting things about the microbiome in the mammalian system is what's going on with the immune system and those microbes. Uh, so I think some of the best sort of systems that have looked at that have been in those like germ-free mice systems. Um, um, and so that probably serves as sort of the, the closest analogy to the human case, whereas in mine, I'm going farther back sort of to a more primitive state um, and interaction system. Um, but I think one thing I was just thinking about with what uh, Fred was talking about and what you've mentioned about the um, kind of idea about microbes influencing our sort of mental state, there have been some studies that show, for instance, that certain microbes can actually promote like serotonin production by the host or even uh, produce serotonin derivatives themselves. So I guess from those, that perspective, you could see how um, certain gut microbes could actually influence your mental state. Um, so I think that's really interesting. But then it, it, going back to the immune system, one thing that I think is really challenging is how, you know, as a as an animal, how it is that you learn how to counter the pathogenic microbes and destroy those, but not react to the beneficial or just neutral microbes like in your gut. And it seems like these um, beneficial microbes or even just, just our general gut microbiome is actually informing that response and tailoring that response as we develop. And, and so, the, the, uh, you know, uh, since amoeba is using bacteria as, as food, there is still resident bacteria in the system? So in this case, uh, not so much. I mean, certainly they're constantly encountering uh, bacteria in the soil and in their environment. Um, but in my case, you know, if you think about the most of the time in their life cycle, so I guess I should back up and say the particular amoeba that I study is a social amoeba. So it uh, goes from sort of a single cellular stage, which most amoeba exist in, to a multicellular stage um, that has sort of a differentiated structure and then back to a single cellular stage. So if you think about things like a microbiome, you really kind of are thinking about a system where you have a multicellular organism and um, microbes are maybe, you know, existing sort of on structures and not just inside cells. Um, and my system looks more at bacteria that are living inside cells rather than inside sort of multicellular structures. Um, but I guess what I would say is that in this system, um, there are probably transient interactions at the multicellular stage that may be microbiome-like. Um, but there are certainly some longer-term intracellular interactions that are occurring. Um, but what exact, what effect they exactly have on the amoeba and the in the environment is not completely clear. Okay. Okay. So, so Brett, uh, termites are a lot bigger than, than yeah. amoeba. And so, so they, <laughs> uh, I suspect we have we have uh, more analogous. Uh, so sort of uh, analogous to the human system, right? Uh, interactions. Um, yeah, to an extent, I think um, the the gut of the termite is is a pretty unique place, just because it is basically a bioreactor based on the diet that the termite eats. 
Uh, something I was thinking about that it maybe is a little bit more analogous to the mammal system when Suzanne was talking about um, post-microbe interactions is I think something that we haven't really talked about is the microbe-microbe interactions. And in a term like uh, we're talking about representative microbes from all three domains of life. They have protozoa, you know, amoeba-like organisms. They have bacteria. They have archaea. They also have definitely viruses that are hanging out there. And that um, dynamic is also constantly changing. So you have the host and, and the food that they're eating, their immune system, and, you know, their physio physiology that's happening in the gut naturally. But all of these microbes are constantly interacting with each other. We've got intracellular symbionts in other symbionts and extracellular symbionts, and they're kind of all constantly um, interacting in this micro habitat. And so thinking about the immune system, I think something we haven't talked about is these antagonistic relationships between what we would consider our like beneficial microbes and these potential pathogens. And that's something that we're studying in our permanent system. And there are some pretty exciting kinds of things coming out about, you know, direct antagonistic interactions with specialized machinery for bacteria, bacteria combat, combat. And then of course, things like secreted enzymes and antibiotics that can um, serve to protect not only the host, but this biofilm that these mineral flora are all kind of working together to create and maintain. Yeah, and I understand that in the case of the termite, the the the, the wood-based uh, diet that they have, they require microbes to basically break down. Um, to break it down as efficiently as they do, the termite does have some endogenous cellulases. So there are cellulases in the termite genome, but a lot of the recycling of that wood is happening by microbes in the gut. Yes. Okay. And, and so, so what's the lifespan of a termite? Ah, so termites are actually incredibly long lived. It depends on which um, cast you're talking about. So a queen termite can live for a decade or more. Um, there's actually some oh, wow. anecdotes out there that um, particularly in Florida, where we have some invasive species of termites, that it's possible that those incipient colonies that came over in, you know, wood crates or, or ships may have been there for as long as like seven years before they rose to detectable levels. So one of those anecdotes in the pest uh, community, termite, you probably have a million more um, because it just takes so long. They're very um, stealthy and they can live a long time. And uh, a termite worker can go through several molts and stay as a termite worker. They're they're pretty long lived. Okay, okay. We'll take a quick break. Um, when we come back, we'll talk more about all of these ideas. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we're back. Um, Fred, Susanne, and Brett, uh, we were talking about the microbiome, uh, the interaction of the microbes with uh, with humans, but also other systems like termites, pests, uh, even smaller systems like the amoeba. 
And in some cases, in the case of the amoeba, it's using microbes as a food source. In larger complex systems, there is a symbiotic uh, relationship, uh, maybe in the gut. Uh, but the, the picture is really complex. Some of them are beneficial, some of them may not be. Uh, the picture, the more you look into it, uh, the more the picture getting a bit clouded. Um, so, Fred, you know, I want to go back to sort of the history of this a uh, little bit. Uh, you know, one of the papers um, you had sent me uh, looking at the H. pylori uh, bacteria that uh, there are different varieties of it. And uh, we could potentially use um, sort of the movements of H. pylori uh, to look at even the migration of humans uh, around the earth, right? You want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, I think that's one of the um, one of the cool things about microbes. Uh, well, is that they're small, and so their genomes are correspondingly small as well, especially bacterial genomes, which makes sequencing these genomes relatively easier than sequencing human genomes. And so we're, you know, I think as humans are quite interested about human population movements, how humans have evolved, how they've traveled throughout history. And that's quite hard to infer, right? So we can use archaeological information. That's been hugely important. Um, we can even use genome and human genome information to infer some kind of migrations um, and how populations have interacted. But fascinatingly, we can actually use microbial genomes, so bacterial genomes. And so studies have used H. pylori, number one, because it's um, usually vertically transmitted. You often get it from your mother. It's transmitted within a community as well. So if you're living in the same household, um, you would you have similar strains of H. pylori. And bacteria, their genomes, as a rule, tend to evolve a bit quicker or they change a bit faster. Uh, there's a number of reasons, it's mostly to do with kind of just their error checking mechanisms are not as efficient as ours. And well, it doesn't really matter. But because they evolve quicker, we get more time resolution. So it's actually quite hard to infer human population movements just from our own genomes because we evolve so relatively so much more slowly. But these kind of yeah communicable bacteria that transmit between people have, you know, evidence in their genome about where they've been, where they are now, and where they might have been in the past. And so we can use these bacteria to create these kind of large-scale population movements that are with quite high temporal accuracy for the last 10,000 years that often, you know, fascinatingly recapitulate things that we see in the archaeological record as well of where pe people have been. So that's, I think, is just like a, a cool byproduct of having a microbiome because the rates of evolution are different um they're they transmit they tell you where you might have been and who you might have come into contact with and so we could infer these types of yeah large-scale migrations which i think is just like a fascinating um <laughs> consequence of having a microbiome yeah yeah, yeah. um the one of the papers i saw um so the evolution uh, of the host microbiome as an ecosystem on a leash so um, I just want to touch on this this idea of this uh, hollow genome uh, idea. Um, is the host controlling it, or is the microbiome controlling the host? Uh, uh, what is our latest understanding of that? I think it's probably. I would argue, and I don't know, maybe Britain Suzanne will disagree with me, but um, I think there's some kind of tension there. In some cases, we, you know, as, the, as a human body, you have an immune system or any kind of kind of maybe um, more complex organism that has an immune system, you can in part control what microbes are there. Or you can at least provide the most beneficial environment for the microbes you want, and you can try to get rid of the ones that you don't want. Um, and similarly, microbes will try to invade uh, if they 
you know, we get lots of protection, even in the human. So I know Brett mentioned that like the microbes in the termite guts can provide protection against pathogens or, you know, nasty bacteria or even viruses, similar in human, um, human guts. And what, I think one of the, the cool examples of this is that, uh, I guess we get to a roundabout way, but many pathogens actually can't invade when, they, when we have a healthy microbiome. And so they actually have to get rid of the bacterial flora, the bacteria we have naturally occurring in our bodies. And so there's, yeah, lots of kind of cool examples. One of them is uh, salmonella. So I'm sure most people have heard of um, salmonella. It causes diarrheal distress. Um, you know, it can be fatal if you're, you know, if you don't have access to like proper, proper hydration therapy. Uh, but regardless, it, you know, it's awful. Nobody wants like salmonella dysbiosis. It's, it's terrible. Anyway, and, and the reason it does this actually, uh, the reason you get terrible diarrhea is because it has a fat, it can't invade the gut on its own because there's actually lots of other competitors there that prevent it from attaching, prevent it from growing. So what it does is it induces immune response. So it'll actually invade into the gut lumen. Those cells will be destroyed by the immune system and it will cause yeah an inflammation. And this inflammation will kill off most of your resident bacteria. And then there's salmonella can hide. Some of the salmonella cells that don't invade will hide from the immune system and then recolonize now this brand new environment. Gone are the bacteria that were giving you some protection. And then it causes a horrendous infection that, you know, results in, you know, terrible outcome for the human for at least a few days. And it transmits to them to a new human. So it's, you know, from termites to humans, potentially even to amoeba, these bacteria might provide some, you know, our resident gut flora is really important and many kind of pathogenic bacteria will have to try to circumvent that. In this case, salmonella is very clever and uses its own immune system against us. Yeah, I mean, that's what's fascinating about the, you know, uh, again, four billion years of evolution. Um, humans are really a sideshow in <laughs> the earth, right? So, Susan, you know, um, amoeba hunting bacteria for food um, you know, that is a, that's a really complex system uh, that is happening underneath our foot. And so um, do we see sort of the, you know, the same sort of dynamic between the predator and prey relationship uh, in there between amoeba and bacteria? Yeah. So I guess when I think about that kind of dynamic, you see... Um, Obviously, the, the predator is trying to phagocytose and actually digest the bacteria, and then there's selective pressure on bacteria to evade that, and there's many different sort of evolutionary strategies to do that. So one could be making just virulence factors or toxins that are secreted and sort of prevent the an amoeba from, from even engulfing it in the first place, or even things like um, biofilm formation. Uh, to prevent being able to be sort of surrounded and engulfed. Um, and those kinds of strategies are also important when you think about pathogens evading our own immune response. Um, and then, of course, finally, in being able to be ingested but not um, digested. So if you can get inside of a eukaryotic cell, but then survive there and maybe capitalize on the, the nutrients and protection you get inside that cell, um, you could potentially evolve towards either a beneficial or pathogenic state. Um, and I think what what's nice about sort of this amoeba system is that those processes are also in play in mammalian systems 
with our um, innate immune cells like macrophages and neutrophils and dendritic cells who are going around our, our body, you know, looking for potential pathogens, whether they're bacterial um, other or other microbial pathogens, they could be viruses as well. And then basically engulfing those through a phagocytic process and processing them and then displaying um, those the bits of those pathogens to inform the adaptive immune system. And so some of those interactions between basically evading that process or subverting that process in an amoeba could also um, be occurring in a mammalian system um, to basically select for bacterial pathogens, for instance. Is there any uh, sort of human uh, therapeutic direction here? Yeah, so I think understanding some of the basic virulence mechanisms of bacterial pathogens using a simple amoeba system um, could uh, lead to, for one, just being able to counter those strategies, um, potential potentially through therapeutic interventions. Um, the other thing I'm particularly interested in is understanding what are the uh, amoeba factors that are um, leading to either uh, more or less uh, tolerance of um, potential intracellular invaders. And if we can identify some of those elements, maybe those could also be used as uh, therapeutics. So one thing that, um, that I'm kind of going, going into the direction of is looking at lysozymes, which are um, products that uh, pretty much all eukaryotes make and are certainly important for mammalian systems that serve as sort of intrinsic defenses against uh, bacteria. So we secrete them and they sort of enzymatically destroy um, other microbes. And amoebas do this too. And these uh, lysozymes that are secreted um, maybe you could consider harnessing those sorts of things as sort of um, uh, factors to to decontaminate um, bacteria, for instance. Do, do we have anything practical today or it's to, just a research direction? Hmm, that's a good question. I don't know if in the amoeba system, yeah. for sure, whether there's something that the amoebas are producing that is... Uh, translated into a particular therapeutic, but um, I think we've definitely discovered more about uh, the bacterial virulence factors that are contributing to uh, pathogenesis. Um, and that's more in systems where people are actually looking at uh, human-relevant bacterial pathogens. Um, my interest is really in looking at um, natural interactions that are occurring between these amoebas and bacteria and uh, just beginning to sort of understand those natural interactions rather than use this system as a um, model for um, human-relevant bacterial pathogens. Okay, okay. So, so Britt, um, so termites like ants have sort of a complex uh, social system, right? Yeah, they do. And, and so, so what, what is, um, you uh, talk about lower termites and higher termites. So, so uh, what, what exactly are those things? So the, the names lower and higher termites refer to their evolutionary history. So lower termites are older lineages, higher termites are newer lineages. And really the dividing line is lower termites have protists in their guts and higher termites don't. So it's it's a, a human-imposed bin that we put these termites into. Um, 
but all termites do have these social interactions. And I think what's really interesting, kind of thinking about what Suzanne was saying, what we can learn from these systems, um, termites have hygiene um, and they clean their nests, they clean each other, they will actively groom things like pathogenic fungal spores off of each other. And they also do something that I, I know Suzanne and I have talked about. Um, they basically do the equivalent of a fecal transplant on each other um, after molts or after dysbiotic events. So when their microbes have been disrupted because of a molt or an infection, they will feed each other poop and refaunate their guts because as we've talked about, without a healthy microbiota, they aren't healthy as a whole. And so I think that's something interesting that we can take away from termites and we are implementing in human systems. You know, there are um, some FDA approved um, uh, fecal transplant as a therapy. And so the community living, uh, the termites community living, um, that is also, I would imagine, influenced by uh, by the bacteria, right? So, you know, what kind of effects uh, do they have in some terms of, you know, I'm thinking about ants. Uh, do they affect organization structure uh, where they are found and so on? So the there's some thought about termite evolution being really driven by this reliance on gut microbiota. So social living may be a product of this reliance on um, gut microbiota. Um, in terms of how their casts are uh, regulated, in termites, the mechanisms are a little bit different than in things like bees and ants. Um, yeah. It's hormonally driven. And we've talked about how um, bacteria may play a role in host hormone production and, and things like biogenic means like serotonin. Um, we haven't made that link um, explicitly in termites, but there seems to be some evidence um, that reformation of termites after molts can really um, change the trajectory of, of their life history. So we don't have a, a direct mechanism in, rela in relationship to cast, but we do think that these gut microbiota have a really um, big impact on termite evolutionary history in that transition from cockroaches, which are kind of semi-social and a little bit gregarious to termites, which are truly social and interreliant on each other. Yeah, and I think there's, I mean, there's other interesting examples from the insect world, like, uh, you know, using their microbiomes for detection. So it seems like bees, for example, might be detecting. So, you know, how does a bee know whether it's in its right nest or not? Well, often it can remember where it's been flying. But, you know, how do then bees also recognize themselves? And so there's kind of lots of pheromone communication. And there's been some experimental evidence to suggest that this, these kind of pheromones are directly linked to the microbiome that these bees carry. So these bacteria are altering their um yeah the pheromone composition and allows you know these to recognize i'm from this nest or this is an interloper not from this nest and that's directly being driven by a microbial community but you do also raise an interesting point there gil about you know the fact this transition from sociality from kind of just living on your own to living in communities it's a huge question like how do social environments cope with diseases um because you're more prone to spreading diseases when you live in kind of a colony you live together in a city this, we've seen this happening, you know, even in our, even for humans, this happens when you get lots of people close together, diseases spread much more quickly. And so there have to be kind of, you get a lot of benefits from maybe living, kind of social living, social life, uh, division of labor, for example, you can have 
things that specialize on getting food or things that specialize in reproducing. Uh, but you also get some kind of downsides. And one of the major downsides is the spread of disease. So maybe that has to, you also have to evolve then more complex immune systems or behaviors like, you know, hygiene, cleaning that can counteract these uh, the downsides of being social. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Talk about social and uh, close interactions and COVID-19. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, so the other thing I want to touch on, Fred, is uh, obviously antibiotic resistance has, has been a problem. Um, because of economic and other reasons, uh, there hasn't been a lot of research in this area, um, commercial research, I should say, in pharmaceutical companies. And so we are uh, sort of pushed against the wall now uh, in terms of antibiotics. And so, so, so where do we stand on that now? Uh, you know, the, the current understanding uh, of bacteria, is it, is, it, is it going to help us uh, design more effective antibiotics? Or is it not the direction we want to head? Uh, you know, are there different ways to handle uh, bacterial infections to humans? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's an interesting question. So we know that our microbiome is so important for many, many things, and it might be involved in, you know, things that sound far-fetched, but may be true from mental health to just, you know, normal, everyday, you know, gut function. So, but the problem is when we, you know, try to kill these pathogens, we use very, you know, we use a sledgehammer, essentially, we use an antibiotic, and antibiotics tend to kill all bacteria. That's why they're effective. Um, they work really well but they're not very targeted. That's, and so that's an issue. I mean, more over than, and also, you know, when you target all bacteria, then the chance for resistance genes to emerge and spread are just greatly increased. And so there's a lot of thought about how can we tailor, we live in an age of diagnostics, of incredible diagnostics. So often we can, well, hopefully in the future, we'll be able to quickly figure out what's wrong in terms of like bacterial pathogenesis. We could identify it, the pathogen quite quickly, and it'd be nice to have a treatment then that could target that. How we make a treatment, that's less clear. So, um, of course, maybe there's some chemicals that tend to target certain bacteria over others. Uh, we know that actually, but using bacteria themselves might be a good option because bacteria, they, it's a competitive world out there for a microbe. They've evolved to kill each other very effectively. In fact, most of our antibiotics come from, you know, streptomycetes that produce broad classes of these uh, types of antibiotics. But even more so, they produce peptides that are quite targeted at kind of competitors. And fascinatingly, an idea that's coming back into fashion um, is using viruses. Mm. So just like humans, bacteria have their own viruses. We often call them bacteriophage. And so this was an idea, and this is not a new idea, using viruses to treat bacterial infections. This has been around for um, almost 100 years now, I suppose. But back in the early 1900s, it was discovered that you could get viruses uh, that you know, could kill bacteria. This is kind of pioneered by uh, Felix Durrell and Georgi Oliva, who was a, a the Georgian, but the Republic of Georgia um, doctor there. And they used sort of viral concoctions they got from the sewers uh, to treat quite effectively um, bacterial diseases. And so there is some work now trying to use specific viruses in the case of like highly antibiotic resistant infections to kill these bacteria with some success. And I know this is probably something I mean, I think Suzanne can speak a bit more about because she, in fact, worked at the Georgi Oliva Institute in Georgia. I think it's in Tbilisi. I don't know where it is, but um, yeah, Tbilisi. Yeah, uh, on looking at some of these kind of uh, viral, uh, yeah, viral treatments for bacterial diseases. Yeah, Ben, you want to talk a bit about that? 
Yeah, sure. So, and I think one thing Fred brought up that was really important is this specificity. So um, one thing that's been really why antibiotics became so popular was that it was the, that sledgehammer approach, uh, a silver bullet that basically if you had almost any type of bacterial infection, you could just take this pill and, and get rid of it. You didn't really need to know or identify what the particular bacteria was. Um, of course, that means that you also got rid of all of the potential beneficial uh, bacteria that you had as well, um, and that was a potential downside. But now with this idea of being more precise at, at being able to detect exactly what um, potential bacterial species you're infected with and is causing the problems, that, that allows us to tailor an approach to combat it. And this is sort of the, the benefit now of this idea of phage therapy, where you're taking uh, maybe a collection of viruses that are um, targeting very specific species or even strains of the bacteria. And these are sort of thought as also self-replicating uh, therapies, because as a virus, as soon as they infect a cell, they're going to reproduce thousands or hundreds or thousands of progeny, which can go on to um, continue to target that um, selectively that bacterial pathogen. Um, and so this is definitely something people are, are coming back to. And I think, as Fred said, there's been sort of mixed success. And I think we're seeing it more um, maybe being being used more now in cases where people have back antibacterial resistant infections that we just haven't been able to uh, treat the normal way. Um, this is kind of their the last ditch effort and has been really successful in those cases. Um, but there's a lot of other things that make it challenging. Like how do you, first of all, identify that pathogen, be able to isolate um, a bacterial virus that targets it, and then um, deliver it to you know the appropriate area that's that's infected and that might be internal to someone. Um, but I think it is really exciting. And then with um, newer techniques to actually you know genetically manipulate these bacteriophages or or change them in some ways to make them more effective um, is you know potentially on the horizon. Yeah. So um, is it possible, Suzanne, to? Uh, to, to conduct experiments to, you know, essentially evolve um, bacteria. So give, given this, again, this uh, predator-prey uh, predator relationship, um, would we actually control those mechanisms to, to essentially create newer forms that might be beneficial in mm -hmm. some way? Yeah, and, and maybe uh, Fred can even talk about that a little bit more, but uh, bacteria are, you know, evolve quite rapidly because of their generation times. And so I guess if you were to supply the correct type of selection pressure, um, you could evolve more beneficial microbiome bacteria, for instance, or in this case with, if we were talking about bacteriophages, you could, you know, evolve bacteriophages that target certain types of bacteria or even bacteria that are specifically resistant to antibiotics and then just target those. Um, but uh, I think if you're applying the right kind of selection pressure, there's certainly a way to potentially evolve the organism that you want. Although I think um, evolution is, is complex and it's hard to necessarily control the trajectories, but that's definitely something I think Fred could probably elaborate a lot more yeah, on. Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably two two avenues here. I mean, the first is we might already be doing this anecdotally. Um, 
you know, if you have a, lots of cultures, eat a lot of fermented food, um, which is chock-a-block full of like microbes that are often are very beneficial. You know, there's been some evidence suggesting that if you are on an antibiotic treatment, eating something like yogurt is quite good for you because it reseeds your kind of microbial community with lactobacillus, which can have positive effects. And we've been eating yogurt for, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of years. So these are kind of, not only does it save our food, but it might also protect our guts. But yeah, there's some thought that maybe one of the things we can do as if we don't have effective treatments for killing microbes is, um, you know, actually inserting a microbe into our body that can outcompete the pathogen yeah. or a version of the pathogen that isn't as good, but, you know, grows a bit faster. So a lot of these kind of, a lot of the mechanisms that make us sick, these virulence factors that will interact with our body and cause the kind of bad outcomes that cause the disease, they're incredibly metabolically expensive to produce. It takes a lot of energy for microbes to produce these. And so if we engineer microbes that don't have them and then seed these microbes into the human body, they'll actually be able to outcompete or grow faster than many of their kind of pathogenic um, competitors. And then they can actually cause, <laughs> through this competition, they don't grow as well, and then the immune system can come in and, and do its job. So kind of like a Trojan horse style, where you kind of genetically engineer the bacteria so, so it can compete with the uh, disease-causing strain, but you know, then allowing time for the immune system to clear the infection. So this has been suggested. Uh, there's been some work done. I mean, so it's hard to get approval to do this in humans because you're putting in a microbe that might evolve to also be pathogenic. But there's some example in agriculture where people have taken these strains. There's a lot of kind of cool new agricultural biotech startups that actually do this, engineer the bacteria to outcompete the you know blight-causing, disease-causing strain uh, with to actually relatively high success. Mm -hmm. So, so in conclusion, um, uh, Brittany, um, um, I know that you, you got a NSF grant uh, recently. Uh, this is looking at again uh, gut microbiome in uh, in pests like grasshoppers. Right? Do you want to talk a bit about that and what what your uh, you know sort of your future direction of research might be? Yeah. So. Um, this NSF grant is an institute grant with several other institutions, and my prong of the project is to describe the gut microbiota of Schistocerca um, locusts. So these are lo a, a genus of locusts and um, short-horned grasshoppers um, that have phenotypic and behavioral plasticity. So they do things that we might typically think of as like grasshopper like. And then they also do these like biblical plague style, mm -hmm. just swarms and migrations and complete um, defoliation of landscapes. And so what I'm looking to do is identify the microbes that are in their gut. Um, we know that they have some, but we don't have a great handle on um, what it looks like across species. And particularly when they do this shift, this massive um, physiological and behavioral shift, um, what is happening in their guts. And so the hypothesis being that there could be a microbe in there that is uh, playing uh, puppet master, maybe changing some of the um, circulating hormones or things like that, that could be modulating their behavior or uh, changing how they digest their food. Um, and so that's kind of what we're looking at, trying to find a core microbiome in this genus, but also seeing if there are any key players that seem to predict outcomes um, for the host's physiology and trajectory.
Right, right. And so, San, again, in conclusion, um, what is you know your sort of future uh, research direction? I know you're working on some bacteria-host interactions, and uh, maybe from that, learning how complex microbiome uh, effects could be. Yeah, and one thing actually, since we mentioned the bacteriophages, another thing that I've been integrating into my system is to basically um, find these bacterial viruses that um, infect the particular bacterial symbiont that I study that infects these amoebas. So you've got this three-tier system of now a bacterial virus that targets the bacterial um, infection, I guess I would say, of the amoeba host, and then adding all of those three components into the system and asking how they um, are interact or interact with each other and influence each other's interaction and dynamics and evolutionary trajectories. So it's kind of like a um, phage therapy-like approach, but to see what the long-term um, evolutionary trajectory of those interactions are within the system. And Fred, uh, again, in conclusion, uh, what is your future uh, research direction? It seems like using bacteria against bacteria seems uh, pretty profitable. Yeah, so that's definitely um, an interest. So I'm very interested in the kind of toxins bacteria produce and how that affects um, yeah, their competition and how that can affect diseases in like model systems that we use in the lab. And we also have an arm of research trying to understand how, uh, as phage therapy becomes more popular, we might want to know about how viruses evolve a bit more. Because, you know, there's people suggesting using cocktails and how that phages, different types of phages and how they interact with each other, I think is going to be very important in understanding how effective some of these treatments are going to be. I suppose just as a, a final thought, you know, one of the one of my colleagues here at the University of Missouri, St. Louis, he works on um, salmonella, and um, one of the interesting things coming out of his lab suggests that one of the most important parts of its infectious cycle is being able to attach to the gut lumen. And if it can attach and it can invade and it can induce this immune response, then you're going to get um, some kind of yeah salmonella infection. But it turns out the salicylic acid um, is pretty potent at preventing this from happening. So if you are traveling to a foreign country, uh, you're worried about foods, you know, how good the food's going to be, an aspirin a day is potentially not just anecdotally correct, it might be scientifically the correct thing to be doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I definitely need that, Fred. Uh, so so th th this has been, uh, this has been great, guys. Uh, thanks so much for doing this on a, on a weekend. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, oh, yeah my pleasure. Yeah, th thank you. Have a great call. You too. You too. You too. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.